going to be talking about faithful ministry service tonight as we really begin in earnest our study of first and second Samuel and I don't know if you've thought about this but um, in two books that focuses that most of the focus is on David why are they not named first and second David well we're about to find out in the next few weeks uh, now this these these titles weren't inspired per se that the uh, names of the books um, actually first second um, and first and second kings first and second Samuel first and second kings were originally in the Hebrew Bible first kings second kings third kings fourth king the fourth book of the kings right uh, that makes sense because they're all mostly about the kings eventually um, throughout the history of, of God's word there came a point where uh, they decided to name the first two after Samuel because um, Samuel in particular here is a bright ray of sunshine in the midst of a very dark period and he's going to show us great faithfulness in a nation that greatly needed a faithful example and so it is appropriate in many ways that it's named after Samuel well, there are some there are some scholars that think that Samuel wrote maybe the first book um, and you know, there's, there's good reasons to think that, at least. Um, we just don't know who the author was. Might have been another reason why they decided to name him after him. But anyway, that's beside the point. We're going to see here tonight in our study of David, a man with a heart for God. We're going to talk about Samuel, who was a gift from God to his parents and to his nation. You know, somebody that's normally arrogant, somebody else might say to them, do you think you're God's gift to whatever? Well, if somebody would have said that, of course, Samuel was a very humble person, so I don't think anybody would have said that to him over his arrogance, but if somebody would have said that to Samuel, do you think you're God's gift to Israel? He could have legitimately said, yes, I am. He wouldn't have said that. He would have been very humble. But he was in a very dark time. What exactly the man that God needed, or the the man that Israel needed from God to stir them to the right direction. And we're going to see here that even in his birth, we're going to see a faith that is rewarded and a faith that relies on God alone is necessity. And uh, one commentator said, even at the beginning of this, as we talk about Samuel's birth, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. And we're going to see that with a lady named Hannah tonight, um, and we'll see that in just a minute. We're going to see a lady that's going through some great difficulties, some huge disappointments and discouragements in her life, and she is going to have to rely on God alone because everyone else around her is just not, not being helpful. But again, for background here, let's just understand where this is coming from. We are at the end of a very dark period in Israel's history, the book of Judges. Um, and you may have read through the book of Judges and may think, well, Pastor Brock, some of my heroes, we're using that word heroes, but we all understand what we mean, right? 
some of my favorite Bible characters are in Judges. You got Gideon, Samson, and some others. And there are some highlights. Judges is a fascinating book to study. In fact, it's kind of hard not to jump in there first and then to this, but we just can't do it all, right? Well, at least not at this time. But the thing about Judges is Joshua was a book of victory, of successes. And God overall, although Joshua made mistakes too, Joshua is a book of God giving victory to his people. The book of Judges is basically God having to chastise and correct his people for their apostasy, for their rebellion against him. It's not a happy, bright book in the canon. And basically, there's one verse that could sum up the whole book of Judges, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's always a horrible recipe to live your life, for the life of your family, for the life of your country, is to do things in the way. In fact, but, but that is in literally almost all of the characters in the book of Judges, I have to say Gideon included, these are flawed heroes. They're flawed deliverers. Judges, actually, they could better be called deliverers um, because they were what God sent to deliver the people from the um, chastisement and the punishment that he had given to them. But even these deliverers had some serious flaws. And by really, by the time you get to the end of, of the book, you're just kind of demoralized. And it's like, oh, I just need a breath of fresh air. There's even a couple chapters at the end of Judges that I've found very hard to teach through because the material is so awful. It really is. You read through some of the things that Israelites were doing and you just kind of takes your breath away if you've ever done that. And then you get to the book of Ruth and Ruth is just a breath of fresh air. And Tom actually not too long ago took us through a study of the book of Ruth. It's a small town setting story. Small town people that just um, are, are, are operating on their faith in God and trying to live faithful lives. The beginning of 1 Samuel is like that too. Here we have another small town setting, a family really, um, from Ephraim, of the tribe of Ephraim. And we're going to see out of all the darkness of this period, that Samuel and his family are going to be a breath of fresh air. Samuel will be, will be the final judge that Israel will have. And he will be the godly leader or deliverer that Israel needs. Um, you know, Samuel is the last judge, but really he functions as kind of like an intermediate between the judges and the kings. Because he has um, responsibilities as a prophet, sometimes even as a priest. And even to help pick up the slack for King Saul, he performs some kingly duties as well. So Samuel is a really interesting um, intermediate character here in all of this. And God's going to use him in a mighty way. But this story of Samuel starts with the fact that we will face difficulties in our lives. And that's why we need to depend upon God. Count on it, folks. You know this. The Christian life is not a life of ease. There are going to be hardships. There are going to be deep pains and struggles. And a lady named Hannah certainly knew that. 1 Samuel 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim. Nice big word. Aren't you glad you don't live in that town? Kentukuk is hard enough for me to pronounce. 
of Mount Ephraim, or the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, Jer Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephratite. And all that means was that he was from a prominent clan, prominent family. He was well-known and well-respected. That's a good start. He was a man of honor within the community. This um, Ram Ramathim Zophim may very well have been, ended up being the town of Ramah that Samuel would eventually reside in. And then literally it would be his hometown. It's a possibility. But his, his father, Elkanah, was... Within the community, he was a man of honor. From what we could tell here, he had some wealth. And he was also faithfully dedicated to God. That's a good start for any story. But what we're also going to see here is this man had his flaws too. And in fact, we're going to see here in verse 2 that one of his wives, that his wife Hannah could have no children. And so most likely there's a second wife involved here already, although this was common practice at this time. You know? If we're going to groan at Elkanah, we have to groan at Abraham too. But what probably happened here um, is that he saw that Hannah could have no children. And so he married this other woman so that he could have children. And how do you think that made Hannah feel, by the way? Probably worthless in a lot of ways. <clears throat> and so not he, he has his flaws, right? A well-respected family was expected to have an heir. So maybe he married Penina. With that in mind, and look, look at verse 2 then, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And here we have the dilemma. Here we have the difficulty. It was a huge, it was one of the, the, the greatest um, difficulties or sorrows in Israelite, a Hebrew woman's life, was not to bear children and be able to carry on the family name. That was one of the, hands down, the, the greatest difficulty that a woman could face and one of her greatest sorrows. And so we understand right away Hannah's facing a difficulty here. On the other side of this, though, Elkanah, even with his flaws, he is a faithful man. And we see verse 3, and this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in where? Where would they go to worship? Well, Pastor Brock, they would go to Jerusalem. Well, we don't have the word Jerusalem there. What's going on here? Anybody know? Why? You go to worship in Jerusalem, right? This isn't a trick question. Well, yeah, it, it, it was it was called uh, possibly Salem. It didn't even have the full name of Jerusalem. At, at that point, it might. It's hard to say. But the, the point was, what is Jerusalem known as? The city of David, right? Because David's the one that finally conquered it. Um, when, the, when the Israelites came into the land, they conquered Jerusalem and then let it go and reconquered it and then let it go again and reconquered it. So by the time we get to this point, it's back in enemy hands. So David will be the one that will conquer Jerusalem and make that the capital once and for all where people would worship. And David isn't even on the scene yet. So where they would worship was 20 miles north in a town called Shiloh. That was where worship or the Israelites took place. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. 
So here we have a small town faithful family contrasted with what we're going to see here in just a minute is a rebellious religious family. Family that had the reputation of serving God really fails miserably. And the small town family is worshiping him and trying to be faithful the best that they can. Uh, this worship, it sounds like by what is described here, this may have coincided with an annual family or clan gathering. You know, this might be the equivalent of when you have family reunions um, with your family. You all get together and you do some things. Maybe you go to worship together at the same time at a particular church. This may be what's going on here. This is something that they did annually, and it coincided with their ability to be able to worship there and, and enjoy a peace offering Together, we'll see that in just a minute. Just again, the background here. Verse four, and when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Paniah his wife and to all her sons and daughters, excuse me, to all her sons and her daughters portions, okay? So his second wife, Paniah, obviously has many sons and many daughters. And what he would do, this seems to be describing a peace offering which was an offering that um, a, each family would go and they would offer at a particular time of year. Part of it would be offered to God. And the other part would be eaten, eaten as the family as kind of a meal of Thanksgiving. It's probably the closest thing that we have to Thanksgiving uh, you know, portrayed here. So they would go and they would worship God. And then they would also enjoy a wonderful family meal and Elkanah as the um, leader of his family would give out the portions to all the family members, and he would give some to his wife, Penina, and all of her sons and daughters. But then when he got to Hannah, verse 5, he gave a worthy or double portion is what that seems to mean there, for he loved Hannah. And Elkanah makes it obvious then which wife he favors in the midst of all this. And you just know that this is going to set things up for trouble, right? You know, as and making it clear, it's two wives in the first place. And then, you know, I had to marry the one, but I really still love the other. She's the most one important to me, even though she can't have children is what the verse there says, for the Lord had shut up her womb. And that's just a reminder to us folks that whatever difficulties we face, the Lord knows about them. And he's in control of everything that he allows into our lives. The deepest, the most hurtful thing in Hannah's life was still sovereignly conducted by the Lord, by Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's in total control here. Why would he do this? Well, in his time, it's going to be clear here what the purpose is in this. But <laughs> something interesting, it also seems here that Elkanah, and we're going to see this in just a minute, gives his wife a double portion of food, maybe to help console her for her lack of children. His male perspective is kind of showing here. We'll get back to that, all right? And her adversary, verse 6, her rival, really, also provoked her sore or grievously for to make her fret. This just has the picture of irritating, we say, irritating Hannah to death. There is strife here. And this other wife who has all of these children is looking at the special attention that Elkanah is giving Hannah. 
And she's not happy about that. So she wants to make life as miserable for Hannah as possible. And it really is awful here. And not only just once, but she wants her to feel horrible because the Lord had shut up her womb because she couldn't bear children. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Folks, this wasn't a one-time thing. This is ongoing. Years. You may have to put up with an irritating person at work or somebody that just grates on your nerves and maybe even mocks you sometimes and things like that. But at the end of the day, you can always go home. But Hannah, it's in her home. This person is in her home, her greatest rival. What an awful situation to be a part of here. It's bad enough that she's hurting because she can't have children. But to have this other woman, Penina, then rubbing it in. And she provoked her. It's like she was constantly um, rubbing her raw. And therefore, she wept and did not eat. I can just imagine Penina with her kids, and maybe they're going to the well, and Hannah's there too. And um, Penina says, you know, so-and-so, go over and help Hannah. You know, she doesn't have any children to be able to help her. And just little things like that. You know, Hannah has to fix the meal tonight. And, you know, she doesn't have any helpers to help her. because She doesn't have any children. She can't have children. So I'll let, I'll let you borrow some of mine. And maybe it was even more um, in her face than that. Who knows? But this, again, you get this, the, the idea here that this was grievous to her. There are two great difficulties then. She's unable to have children. And she is cruelly tormented regularly because of it. So her husband comes to her. And in the midst of her grief, Elkanah has a great opportunity here to console his wife. And unfortunately, he fails miserably. And then this is a great illustration of what not to do when your wife or for you that hope to have a wife someday Learn from this. This is not a positive way to respond to your wife when she's really hurting. Okay, this misses the mark. Everybody understand this. What is he saying in verse 8? Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? First aspect that you don't do. When somebody's hurting, especially your wife or a lady, for you to go up to her and say, why are you crying? Stop it. <laughs> it's not a good way to handle it, right? You guys, our husbands know this. <laughs> Um, you need to listen, okay? Now, remember, we're not, Elkanah is a faithful man, but he's got his weaknesses here, and obviously communication with his wife is one of those. And why eatest thou not? Do you realize what he's saying here? He's saying, look, I know you're upset, but look, I, I gave you a double portion. And man, what do we think when we're going through difficulties? What is one consoling thing for us is getting to eat, right? Food consoles us. And so maybe Elkanah is saying here, well, I gave you extra food. You know, I know you're hurting. Food, eat. And he's just totally missing the whole point, right? And then he says, why is thy heart, why are you still so sad? Why are you grieving? I gave you the double portion. And then he tops it all off with this, right? He says, am not I better to thee than 10 sons? What is he saying here? Hey, I gave you extra food. And above all else, you still got me, Right? Why wouldn't she be happy? <laughs> Poor Hannah. I'm sure she was patient, but 
her husband's insensitive responses here. Let's face it, extra food and self-focused talk cannot soothe deep sorrow. So Hannah knows that in the end, when her hurt is this deep, she can't depend upon other, even those that are closest to her. She needs to go to God. And that's what she does. Wonderful example here. And she shows us we must depend upon God alone for help. We're all going to face difficulties. Who are we going to go to first? Are we going to depend even upon those closest to us? Well, they're going to, they may not always have the answer either. They may say something insensitive. They're going to fail us. God never fails us. And so here we have Hannah now, verse 9. Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a door by a, a door or sat upon a seat by a doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul. This is deeply distressed and prayed unto the Lord and wept bitterly, wept sore. And Hannah knows that when she's feeling this way, there's only one person that she can turn to in the midst of our deepest distress. And it's not even her husband. Her husband isn't going to be her savior here. She has to turn to God. God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, knows her deepest pain. And we think many times of God as far as the Old Testament and the God of Israel as being distant, right? And remember, his, his holiness, which is certainly one of his attributes that we must be respectful of and be in awe of and how the Israelites had to kind of keep distance. But at the same time, we have this other side of it where Hannah knows that she can go directly to him and let him know of her hurt and her pain, and he will respond to her. The God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, we sometimes say, is still a God of love and comfort and grace. And he's going to show that in her life. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not distant. Now, something else here talks about the temple of the Lord. It's interesting. Since we're not even, the temple's not even in Jerusalem yet. Jerusalem hasn't been conquered, so there's no temple. And as we'll get into this, you'll notice that they moved, first of all, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, into Jerusalem. There was no temple at this time. The only thing they would have had was the tent um, and the Ark of the Covenant. So what is this? Well, it seems from the description here that we have a couple different options. This could have been either a wooden structure, some sort of house situation, not a full-blown grand temple, but some sort of housing situation that housed the Ark of the Covenant and allowed people to worship at that time. Or they could be describing a tent or perhaps a combination of both. We really are kind of vague on the details about what this all looked like when they worshiped at Shiloh. But some sort of structure here where Eli could sit at the door, and he's sitting by the entrance here, and this is his symbol of authority is this seat where he's at. Everyone knows that Eli is the high priest by where he sits, and he's looking out. He sees Hannah in deep distress. And what does she do? Verse 11, and she vowed a vow which is what? It's a serious committed promise or oath. It's the most serious promise or oath that any Israelite could give. And there were very strict rules on vows. You could never break a vow. You could never go back on it. It's not like a promise. We shouldn't break promises either, but sometimes promises get broken. But uh, vows, not allowed to break those. So this is serious. 
She bowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. And that is a beautiful description, by the way, of the God of all armies, the God that is powerful over all of the powerful armies and entities and kings of the whole universe. That's a powerful term. And Hannah is using this because she knows she has a problem that only the power of the Lord of hosts can fix. She understands this. If thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now, what this seems to be is a Nazarite vow, even though it doesn't give the whole extent of it. Same Nazarite vow that Samson would have taken, his parents would have taken for him. Seems to be the case here with Hannah. She's vowing that if, she, if God will just give her a son, that she will raise him in the Nazarite way. That means no razor to one's head. They don't get no, any product of the grapes. They're not allowed to touch that. Wine, grape juice, whatever. Not even grape jelly. You know, they don't get any of that. And no touching of a dead body which not too hard, right? Follow that part. Here's some other interesting things, though. The rules, Samuel would be the firstborn once he was born. The rules for vowing the firstborn to the Lord are found in Leviticus 27, 1 through 8. I'll just read this real quick. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the person shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. And then it goes to specifically what, how you should make the vow when it's a small child. Verse 6, and if it be from a month old, even till five years old, then thy estimation shall be of the male five shekels of silver. But for the female, thy estimation shall be three shekels of silver. And then it continues on talking about how when you're giving up the firstborn, how the, the redemption cost, because normally a Jewish family they were expected to offer their firstborn um, to the Lord, not as a sacrifice, but to the Lord, and then they could redeem that child back. God expected the best, the first of all the offerings, and that included the children as well. But Hannah here isn't going to buy her son back. She's going to give him in service to the Lord forever. A little bit unique even among the Israelite custom here, but she is desperate and she wants a child. Now, here's another male spiritual leader in Hannah's life that has the opportunity to help her. What happens? Verse 12, and it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked or observed her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart and only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put thy wine away from thee. Always a helpful thing when a woman is uh, in deep distress, asking the Lord for something. Accuser of drunkenness. Well, <laughs> you know, the two most important spiritual leaders in her life have failed miserably, right? Okay, and that just is another reminder to us, folks, ultimately, if you're even depending upon those closest to you, even your leaders, sooner or later, your leaders, sooner or later, your pastor is going to fail or going to mess up. That's why 
our hope is always ultimately in Jesus Christ, in our God. Our God will never fail us. Our leaders will fail us. Ladies, your husband, and you know this already, I'm sure, will fail you at some point. We're going to say something really dumb, and then hopefully we'll realize that we said it and go back later on and apologize, and so on and so on. But God will never do that. But why? Let's, let's think of this here. Why would Eli think that Hannah was drunk? I mean, we, there's probably some of us in here that when you're really thinking about something very hard, Maybe your lips tend to move sometimes. I don't think that I do that necessarily. Or you tend to mumble or, or whatever as you're thinking through and you just kind of comes out. Oh, yeah, it's kind of normal. I, if I see somebody do that, I don't go up to them and start, tell, and start telling them to stop drinking beer or whatever. So what do you think? Why would, is Eli just very strict and old and crotchety? I don't know. What do you think? Just irritable. Let me give you some help here. Now, I, I can't say for certain, but I'm pretty convinced that this is what it is. Remember the time period? Remember how dark things are in Israel's history right now? I think personally that Eli regularly sees, unfortunately, people that are drunk trying to worship God. And so he comes upon Hannah because that is the tenure of, of the book of Judges of this time period. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So if I want to get drunk and then go worship God, why can't I do that? And I think he comes up and he says, oh, not another one of these situations. Here, we, another one of these drunken people trying to worship God. When are they going to learn? And he takes out his irritation on her. What does Hannah say? But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful or troubled spirit. <laughs> I haven't drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I didn't take any alcohol at all. I poured out my soul before the Lord. Count or regard not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, which at this time period, it seems basically meant a wicked or worthless woman. I'm not a wicked or, or worthless individual. I'm seeking God's help. For out of the abundance of my complaint or my anxiety and grief have I spoken hitherto. Hannah pleads with him, don't think of me as a wicked woman. That's the exact opposite. <laughs> Again, the, the poor lady, here she is giving her heart out to God and totally misunderstood. And then you know how when you're trying to serve God and somebody comes up and accuses you of wrongdoing in the midst of all that, it just takes all the wind out of your sails. And I'm sure she's frustrated, but she's being kind and gracious here all the same. It shows her character. She's in her distress, she's calling out to God for help. She's not showing disrespect to the temple of God, but dependence upon God. She's saying, I need God. That's why I'm here. And then Eli realizes. And I think in this answer, Eli may be pleasantly surprised to find an Israelite who is sincerely seeking after Yahweh. I, can, I kind of picture it like this. Eli says, oh, oh wow. We actually have someone here that's seriously seeking Yahweh and sincerely desires for him to help her. We haven't seen that in a while. Well, wonderful. And he validates her prayer with a blessing. He says, go in peace, that Hebrew word shalom, well-being. And he asked that the Lord will answer her prayer. Verse 17, Eli answered and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. 
And she said, well, it's about time. I can't believe it. You know, isn't it interesting? I did that though on purpose. How many times do we get bitter at leadership for some sort of slight that they were wrong in doing? Now I'm not talking, well, we should never be bitter at leadership, but I'm not talking a grievous sin that puts somebody out of ministry. I'm talking about some sort of slight that sooner or later the leadership is going to show to an individual, whether they meant to or not, something that they said, maybe they were, um, they just were, were brutish in how they said it or, or whatever, maybe even cruel. And that person just gets bitter and they hang on to it and they can't let it go. And it's something that they hold against the leadership for years. That does happen actually a bit more than what we'd like to admit a lot of times. Not Hannah. She just says here, let thine handmaiden find grace or favor in thy sight. She's not bitter because she just gave her burden to the Lord. In fact, she's unburdened now. And so the woman went her way and did eat and her countenance was no more sad. She's not bitter. She's gracious. Why? Because she's taken her concerns to her God and she's left her burden at his altar and is at peace. And that's a good way for us to start our prayer time, isn't it? To realize that as we bring our burdens to the Lord, that we can leave here like Hannah unburdened. Did Hannah have some deep hurts, some deep things? She sure did. But she realized she had faith that she had given those over to God. So I'm done hanging on to them anymore. He's got them. He'll deal with it. And she hasn't even been given a promise yet that she's going to have a son. But she knows God heard her. And that's enough. And she's not sad any longer. And folks, a lot of times when we're sad and grieved and bitter, if we would truly just give it over to the Lord and leave it to him, we'd be a whole lot happier. Our countenance would be happier. Don't be that better person that's holding on and angry. Why would God let this into my life? Why do I not have any kids? And why do I have to put up with this woman that I live with that literally is mocking me all the time? And then the two guys that I rely on the most for spiritual leadership and they both fail. Oh, she doesn't do that. But she goes, takes it to the Lord and leaves them with him. So let's do that tonight, even as we pray, and not be bitter, but expect that he's going to answer our prayers.